Hello and welcome to the next episode of Lost in Criterion. I'm John Patrick Oatari Dorgan, and with me, as always, is a man who is probably a drunken English sailor, and that means he likes to brawl. I love to brawl. It's like fencing to me. <laughs> the best, the best line the in the whole West. movie. <laughs> it really it's is like a great line. For them. I'm like, what? what? Yeah. <laughs> okay, sure. Uh, well, I mean, it's an upper class Frenchman saying it, I know, so but... you know, you get, the, you, you understand. But then <laughs> extend that out and imagine a version of the world. I mean, I guess we do have it. Never mind. It's called karate. Never mind. Let's move on. Uh, no, I was thinking about the fencing system and they have the little pointers where you like, you know, on the where when it touches, it activates the light and you know who scored right, a point. Right, and I was right, like, right. imagine that. But for a bar brawl. And then I realized that I remember that in karate, at least professional, like like competition grade, that's what they have. Interesting. I didn't know that. They have like the sensors time... when you get a hit, like you it it sets off. Like yeah. uh it like at least I've seen what I've seen is it like when you make contact with like their chest, it like activates a sensor or something like that. I'm pretty sure I saw that. Yeah. That's very interesting. I uh I took a fencing class in college. Uh-huh. And because uh, you like bruises. <laughs> it was fun. It was fun. I took I was required to take four phys ed classes and I took fencing, swimming, uh, orienteering, which is like map oh, reading, outdoor class, is, yeah. and, uh, and bowling. Uh, bowling. Um, <laughs> Bowling's a great class because I took summer school in high school because I had surgery yeah. on my legs and I had to do make up my, oh, yeah. ma- make up my pee. And I got and the summer class, like one of the big parts of summer, uh, um, summer phys ed was bowling and it was great. Yeah. I will. I will tell you, bowling is as as great as bowling might be. A uh, seven thirty a.m. bowling class. <laughs> yeah, it's not is, uh, not so much fun. Wake up, wake up every morning. Uh, I got most improved in my bowling class because uh, I slowly started to wake up, get used to being up that early. Right, and then um, suddenly, and suddenly but, like became good at it again. Yeah. Well, see, I took yeah. golf anyway, and I, I never also had golf at like seven a.m. and yeah. Turns out golf and 7 a.m., they go together pretty well. Also yeah, leaving all like the balls on the soccer out. field, the, the soccer practice field, and just walking <laughs> away, which is legitimately what our teacher told us to do. She Great. was like, so we were like, teacher- should we go get those? Because it like very clearly in like the, the handbook or whatever, yeah. like, make sure you clean up at the end. She's like, nah, it's fine. I don't know what was going on between <laughs> the golf program and the soccer program, but it seemed pretty vindictive. That's all I'm saying. that. That's not surprising. Anyway, uh, fencing class. Um, I also got most improved in fencing class because I actually improved at fencing. Well, you started course. at zero, right? So like, right? Started started at zero. <laughs> started started with. Uh, well, I've seen some Errol Flynn movies, right. and uh, <laughs> well, but, a lot uh, of room for growth but, there, right? Yeah. During the final class, um, which uh, it was like after the final, so attendance wasn't even required, and there were less than half of us there. And I don't even know why I showed up because I, I literally never showed up for any other class where where attendance was not required. Um, right. But uh, but I I came to this one, and there were only a half dozen of us or so there that day, and uh, he had the the sensor uh, suits for the first time. Right. It's like, um. So, uh, so he had us, he had us fence with the sensor suits. Here's the thing. Uh, the sensor suits, um, in order to maintain the whole circuit through the whole body, um, have a, uh, 
have a bit through uh, that goes under your crotch yeah, that yeah, needs yeah, to connect yeah. in order for it to work. Um, uh, and the ones he had were not designed for people who are 6'4 and 250 pounds. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, uh, I, my only experience fencing with sensor suits, uh, I was also just hunched over and trying to make my body as small as possible and had a piece of fabric pressing against my testicles. And uh, it was not, <laughs> I didn't do so well, I guess is what I'm saying. <laughs> but, well, but it was fun. Well, now I'm doing research on professional, like on uh, karate sensor suits. And I guess I'm wrong, but I could have sworn I've seen them before. But like, like I'm not finding it on the internet. So it's like, oh, maybe it's just, I imagined it. Like maybe I was like, maybe, I had a dream maybe. where this was a thing. I, I believe it. I imagine. Imagine optical technology. It could just be like a TV production thing, too. It might be. Tonight. It might. Yeah, I don't know why. I, like for some reason, I could have sworn I I was watching like like Olympic karate and they had something like that. But it seems like I guess it's just the judge. I don't know what's going on. Oh well. I don't know. I'm fine with being wrong on this. This is not a thing I have any stakes in. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm glad we we started our. Uh, we started our movie podcast with as much sports talk as you will ever hear from <laughs> yeah, our podcast. Yeah, this is it. We've hit peak peak sports right here, guys. <laughs> so we're going to move on now. Before we get into the movie this week, I want to talk about our Patreon. Patreon.com slash Lost in Criterion. Also, dollar no a sports month. Stuff. No sports? Uh, yeah, so I mean, far. Well, we I mean, haven't watched the exception, Karate Kid or anything like that. So I mean, We haven't, but we have watched Kicking and Screaming. There was some sports oh, stuff. Right, soccer. I forgot about that. Soccer, also a sport. Yeah, I mean, um, if you say it. No, I'm just kidding. I'm, I'm I know your golf, your golf people tried to make sure you didn't think that, but. Yeah, yeah, right. Like, well, <laughs> they they wanted me to believe that I should actively punish soccer players <laughs> by leaving right what are essentially deadly cow traps in their uh, on their soccer field. Right, right. For a dollar a month at Patreon.com/slash Lost in Criterion, you get access to a bonus episode. As I just said, we have watched Kicking and Screaming, one of the worst movies we've yeah. watched over there. Uh, it is always a non-Criterion film, so I should say we do mean the Kicking and Screaming starring Will Ferrell, uh, not the one that is in the Criterion Collection. Um, we put together a list, usually based on a movie we watched recently or some other idea. The, the list is themed. And in fact, the Kicking and Screaming list theme was a mistake. Uh, movies that share titles with movies that are in the Criterion Collection, uh, which is why Kicking and Screaming won. Uh, I forget what else was on I don't that remember list. Either. This point, I mean, I'm sure they were better than Kicking and Screaming. There I'm, are plenty. Yeah. I'm sure that's true, too. Um, but we've watched uh, we've watched really great movies. We've watched some movies that should be or even are eventually in the Criterion Collection. Uh, for instance, we've uh, we've watched a number of Sidney Lumet directed films. One of which ended up being in the Criterion Collection afterward. Failsafe, his uh, his version of the same story that Kubrick adapted into Doctor Strangelove. Adapted in air quotes. Um, yes. Yes. Lumet's version is much more faithful to the uh, to the source material, as I understand it. Um, 
<laughs> though, though, if I remember correctly, it was uh, it was not Lumet who had the actual rights to adapt. Right. The, right. Uh, yes. Yeah. Well, book. that that. That that whole episode, that episode is almost <laughs> one of those ones that's more interesting for all the sort of meta nonsense around right, it. Right. The movie's right. It's pretty very good. good. It's fine. It's very good, and eventually we'll rehash some of that conversation because <laughs> because that was added to the Criterion Collection. I like the idea it. that that may um, be the only movie we ever rewatch on this podcast. It could be. It very well could be. Um, well, not the only one because on every. Every list, the final option is to make us watch the 1996 children's movie Kazam starring Shaquille O'Neal. And uh, we have watched that a couple of times already over there. And it is always always a choice if y'all want to make us watch it it again. Make us do it. We'll talk about it. I mean, I I could talk about turning a man into a basketball pretty much forever. Yeah, it's good. (laughs) It's It's a surprisingly fun movie. Anyway. I don't know that it holds up, but it is still entertaining. Oh no, at it least. is not. It's not a. It's not a good movie. My children lost yeah. interest in it, which is saying a lot because they'll watch some right. pretty bad movies all the way yes. through. And Absolutely. even they were like, "I'm good. We're gonna bail, okay?" And they just left and like, like walked out of the room, just abandoned me on the couch. I'm like, "All right, I guess so." That is beautiful. That that is beautiful. So a dollar. A month gets you access to the entire back catalog, gets you uh, access to vote on what we're going to watch and help decide. And if you want to suggest a list, we'll take that suggestion. And usually the person who suggests a list, if a, if a supporter suggests a list, we'll invite that person to be on the podcast as well. So we have guests over there a little more often. And it's, uh, yeah, it's fun. It's very fun. But that is a dollar for a little extra $5. We like to thank those people on air. And our good friend Stephen Goldmeyer is our only five dollar supporter right now, but we are so grateful to have him at that Absolutely. tier. A little above that, we do something that I think is pretty dang special. Pat makes a piece of art based on one of the movies we watched recently, <laughs> yeah. and I get yeah. that printed up on a postcard, write a little thank you note, and mail that off to our ten dollar and above supporters. We also thank those people on air, so thank you so much to our supporters, Adam Speakerman, Patrick Yako, Michael McGrath, Jason Westhaver, and Chris Otto. Uh, if you want to see some of the past postcards, you can head over to our new Redbubble shop, redbubble.com, search Lost in Criterion over there, and you will find the postcards from the past, most Except of them. One. There was <laughs> there was one that got challenged by Toho because we use... Uh, Pat used Godzilla's face in it, and so Ho told us no. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, I mean, you know, but they are also over there on a three-month delay. So uh, when when the postcards get mailed out uh, three months later, I will put those postcards on that shop. If uh, anyone wants to see what has been given out in the past, or maybe purchase those to send your grandma, yeah, you, you can, can check you it get out. Christmas over there cards forever. Bubble. Uh, are available to you. Okay, good news. Maybe people are definitely committing copyright uh, theft much more than me. Oh, yeah. Because there are... I just typed in Criterion Collection under Redbubble Search. uh, Yeah. And uh, the amount of things that are just straight up the thing... Yeah. Just on a shirt. Like, not not in any way artistically (laughs) altered or, or, or... illustrated in any way but just the like box cover for that particular movie just on a shirt yeah that's is that's well basically all of them 
Um, Toho is a very litigious company. Yeah, so it's so. really just Toho. Uh, the only, the thing about it, like, yeah, no, I just I'm just kind of dealing with that yeah. now, kind of watching this and and right realizing that like, oh, it's just because it's it's them. Um, right, right. Yeah, I mean, it really like, is. I don't think we need to worry about any. Yeah, it's just honestly. a poster of the Throne of Blood, like Throne of Blood. It's just the Throne of Blood movie, bo- like Criterion box art, not the official original poster. But the Criterion just box art, just box as art. A, just as a poster. Oh boy! Oh boy! I'm like somebody is, wow! Just okay. I need to leave this website. Goodbye, yeah. this website. Um, I, I yeah. it will do it'll do our psyche no good to see how much other people are getting away. <laughs> yeah. Well, and then, yeah, I don't even want to know how that would affect me as I start to draw the next thing. I'm like, well, I can do whatever the fuck I want, huh? Right, right, right. Like uh, do a little bit of crop, a little bit of cutting out, get the old yeah. magic wand out, cut it out, throw it on <laughs> throw it on a postcard, done. Fifteen minutes. Go. Start to finish. But that is patreon.com slash lost in criterion if you want to support us and we are so grateful to those who do and so grateful to those who listen. Thanks. <laughs> Thank you. Uh I promise I won't do that for the postcard. I'm good. You better not. <laughs> I promise. I, I promise. I will be that, so cross. That will never be what happens unless it happens on accident, which has happened a couple of times where I made an illustration That's that fair. was kind of accidentally way too close to the original source material. You, you like, circled oh, back shit. around. Yeah, basically. That has happened a couple of times where I'm like, I get yeah. done and I'm like, oh, oh, oops. This happened, huh? <laughs> I just did 50 hours of work. <laughs> to make the thing I could have copied and pasted from, 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 yeah. from the internet. Cool. Yeah. Yeah. This week we are watching our second in a row of three Max O'Fool's movies. Uh, this is Les Plaisirs from 1952. Last week we talked about La Ronde from 1950. And next week we will finish it off with uh, The Earrings of Madame Day. Okay. Uh, which sure. I believe is 1954, maybe 53. I don't have the date in front of me, unfortunately. Um but these are among O'Fool's last films, his final films. He died in 57. Uh, this is him returning to Europe after the war, after a decade working in the U.S. Uh, he had not been in his native Germany for decades right. um, and still did not return to working in Germany. He is working in uh, France at this point, right? Um but he's sort of making international productions too. The Ronde had a much more international cast than even this one. But this this film, uh, Le Plaisir, uh, had an English release as House of Pleasure, and had an English narration release too. Okay, where where only the narration is replaced with an English speaker. All of the dialogue well, is still I, in I French. I guess you could get away with that pretty much. Well. He did it. Um, I'm, I'm, he got I'm away with it. In like, terms of it's, like, would yeah. it be like, uh, would I find it watchable? Right. right. There is also a German language version that uh, has a German narration, but also all of the dialogue is overdubbed in German. So I find uh, that that's really fascinating. That's that's the one that's fascinating. Work. Yeah, and all of those made concurrently. Like those are O'Fools did that. O'Fools right. did that. Um, but yeah. Uh, this was nominated for an Oscar for Best Art Direction. Um, I believe it won, actually. Uh, and uh, it was only the second, it was the second and final time 
of Fools would be nominated for an Oscar. Okay. His American work was not well respected. Okay. <laughs> well, he, he, he came to America with ideas of what he wanted to do with a movie. And he's a very innovative... We talked about this frequently last week, and we'll talk about it again this week. His eye is incredibly innovative. Right. Uh, there are not really directors like Ophuls, and the American studio system tried to beat that out of him. Right. And, You're not making what we and, want you to make. Thank you very much. Right, right. Um, Stanley Kubrick uh, really loves this movie. It's one of his favorite movies of all time, and uh, he cites this as uh, an influence on the... Uh, look of Barry Lyndon, as well as the art direction of Eyes Wide Shut. Okay. Um, yeah. I mean, <laughs> yeah, I really have to I think, think it's more clear with Barry Lyndon than Eyes Wide Shut necessarily, but there are definitely, you know, Eyes Wide Shut is, you know, there's that whole masquerade ball in Eyes Wide Shut, which I think is really what it's Right, what they're what talking about. Yeah, off of, probably. But, yeah. Uh, this is an adaptation of three different. Uh, Guy de Maupassant uh, short stories, Le Masque, Le Maison Tellier, and Le Model. The Masque, the Tellier House, and the Model. Uh, some, Fren- some French is really easy. Um, <laughs> if you say so. But uh, uh, originally the final act was meant to be a different short story called Paul's Girlfriend. Um, okay. Paul's Girlfriend is... Very interesting, uh, comparatively, I think, especially. Uh, Paul's girlfriend is about a guy uh, and his girlfriend. They get in a fight, and she leaves, and he gets sad and goes to find her and finds her in the middle of a uh, lesbian group sex. Huh. (laughs) Uh, Why do you think they didn't make that one? Uh... (laughs) Well, well, there's, there's, um, well, here, let me finish. Okay. First off, okay. he gets so depressed from that that he commits suicide and throws himself in the river, and that's the end of the short story. Okay. Uh, why they didn't make that on a purely technical level is that while they were still finishing the second section, the producers ran out of money. And, and we all and know the new production company are expensive. So. Yeah. Well, well, apparently there is there was a large set piece on the riverbank okay. that needed to be built. Gotcha. And they told him, no, uh, we're not going to do that. Uh, which, you know, is one reason why the uh, uh, the actual final one primarily takes place in <laughs> inside in an apartment. Yeah, in a, in, um, a, in a very pretty dark apartment that, like, really could right. just be anywhere. Yeah. And obviously a, a a set, right? Right. But uh, but the other thing is, uh, you know, the the much clearer reason you weren't you weren't going to be able to sell that movie in America. <laughs> or yeah, I mean exactly. Yeah, it, I mean yeah, uh, a hard enough time selling it in Europe in 1952, but right. you definitely weren't going to sell it in America. So. Yeah, if you have any hope of making anything even remotely, right. I mean, to be fair, we talked about this last week. His movies focus on pretty like pretty racy topics without right, really right. ever showing you anything at all but i guess i i would guess even a right. veiled reference to a lesbian orgy was going to be 
the essay mentions uh, a connection to uh, it mentions uh, Godard's maxim- masculine feminine uh, that we've actually already watched, and I think we we uh, pretty much <laughs> rejected. But it claims it claims that uh, Paul's girlfriend acted as a, an inspiration for a sequence in masculine feminine. Uh, obviously, there was no lesbian sex in masculine feminine. Um, I feel like I'd remember that bit, but I also don't remember what they could be talking about at all. So, um, right, yeah, uh, masculine feminine was the one that uh, uh, Goddard uh, described as the children of Marx and Coca Cola, which was the only the only thing I remember and grasp onto from that movie. Yeah, I mean, I basically don't remember. I mean, like it had I had a lot of visuals, not great gender and I'm politics. like, I guess I remember this, but I could just be generally remembering Godard right. visuals, like right. in general. So I can't even promise that right. that's right. true. Right. I mean, um, well, okay. I correction. I did see a Twitter post that referenced this movie today. Uh, there you go. Which may also be affecting my brain. <laughs> that could be it. Oh, well, the Godard film. I remember we didn't really care for. Goddard's gender politics of the time. Um, the gender politics of this movie, I feel like, I don't know. Everybody talks that there's a lot of commentary about how the ending of Le Maro, uh shows female agency. You know, it is it is the female lead taking control of her own life, but she takes control of her life by committing suicide. Right, and, um, it, and it, it wouldn't, like, pass a sort of special test or anything like that because like <laughs> right, right, why does she commit suicide or try to commit suicide well i mean yeah right. we have the right you know um paul's girlfriend on the other hand uh has has a similar means in that the the girlfriend takes full reins and rejects <laughs> rejects the uh, patriarchy quite quite overtly. yeah right, real real clearly right but yeah <laughs> yeah uh, and then ends with the man committing suicide instead. Um, <laughs> so, yeah. Uh, right. So and, there's that. Well, and we talked last week about the idea that, like, Ophul's gender politics are more, are not, like, that out there and overt. Like, I mean, they're better than what we've come to expect. Right. They are hardly feminist, but they are also hardly patriarchal. Right. right? And and if you think about if his main goal is to talk about, like, the sort of inherent sort of tragedy built into, like, romance and love, then, like, these two stories are are kind of, with with regards to that kind of interchangeable mental, you know, from, like, if if that's your, if that's your view, right, like, that's your goal, you want to end on a tragic note related to love. Right, and of course, Ophuls does yeah, because right. he doesn't believe in happy endings. Then, like, <laughs> that, both of these are fine. Like, both of these work right. fine. Like, right. Uh, so you know, it. it I kind of see where that comes from. Right. Uh, right. I mean, and he I obviously it. made the worst choice because the other one sounds more <laughs> interesting. But like, the other one does sound more. But interesting. I mean, you know, I, if you imagine that, like, we would probably wouldn't be watching this if that he had chose right. that. So. Uh, where where this one does get more interesting is the actual scene of her suicide is one of the most fascinating pieces of filmography we have ever experienced. Oh, yeah. I think. For sure. Right. As it goes from a, a twofer shot of the two of them talking across the table, and then she walks past the camera, and the camera, in a single take, goes from that to a point of view shot of her going up the stairs and we see her shadow and the way this is filmed is actually the cameraman is is on a crane following the stairs well, that's cool. as they go up. 
and then he gets off the crane because the uh, a steady cam that would have you know it, it, you do that today you could do it with a steady cam right right um but steady cam wasn't invented until the 70s like the first movie to use a steady cam was uh Hal Ashby's uh Bound for Glory a fact I learned in preparation for the other podcast I started which I don't think I've mentioned on this one but my friend Ron and I are doing a podcast where we're exploring the uh, Trains Magazine's list of 100 Greatest Train Movies at random. And we started with uh, Hal Ashby's Bound for Glory. That's up uh, the movie Roundhouse. Podbean.com should be able to find which, it over which there. Which I, I have to admit, I have not listened to yet, but my brain <laughs> yeah. always goes to like, oh, like Roundhouse in my head always somehow equals bar. And I don't know <laughs> why that is. But like, oh, I'm like, oh, it's something. Because you're thinking of Roadhouse, actually. I, I know I'm yes. thinking of Roadhouse. <laughs> I, I understand that, but I don't know yeah. why my brain won't correct that error. Um, so I assume this is a podcast about you guys I get it. sitting in, in some We're, sort of bar uh, talking about right. and then, movies. And then we fight bikers. Yes, right, exactly. <laughs> right. Using anyway. roundhouse kicks. Yeah. Anyway, the uh, the camera is, is mount, uh, cameraman's on a crane. And goes up parallel to the actress so that we still see her shadow in the shot. And then the camera, um, there's an interview with one of the actors from the movie and he, he describes the shot. Um, and he says they, they spent three days rehearsing it. Uh-huh. And then the camera is, is a handheld camera that O'Fools had covered in rubber and cloth and had a wire tied off to the back of it. So they just throw it out the window. Nice. <laughs> like, nice. I did not realize that at this point, I guess it makes sense. Like, I was just thinking about, like, in my head, like, I'm always like, oh, like, film cameras are incredibly fragile. <laughs> like, you can't just right. fucking chuck them out a window. But I yeah. guess, like, well. you kind of can. As long well, as you, you don't can't let them really. hit the ground. And, like, as long as you pat it really well. Right. And you, you don't can. Like, let it actually make contact with the ground where it could actually right. like, br- you know, like where it could actually like break the internal mechanisms. I guess it's fine. Right. Right. And, and maybe you can, maybe in the shot, they even sacrificed the camera, protected it enough to protect the film. Right. But, and just be like, fuck this camera. Uh, <laughs> right. Right. I don't know that they actually threw it at plate glass. If that, that could have been stage glass. Right. Or, or maybe it well, was I'm rigged assume they didn't that throw the glass, glass would break. It probably wouldn't go through plate right. glass. It would just right. bounce or, off of it and be like, well, that didn't work. Right. Or the film, you know, they rigged the, the greenhouse right. thing to, to break as the camera approached more than the camera breaking the glass. I don't know that technical aspect. Obviously, the shot we get is the point of view shot hitting the glass and the right. glass, and glass breaking. And it is just a phenomenal. No, it's sequence. amazing. I, uh, it's it's yeah. We don't. It's it's interesting because we don't get on this podcast very often what you might actually call like visual effects, <laughs> right? Like right. we do get them a lot, right? Obviously, there's all kinds of interesting visual work happening all the time in all these movies, but like like a straight up like basically special effect. Yeah, it's not a outside, thing we encounter a lot outside of the '60s and '50s horror and sci-fi that we Which encounter we every so often. Right, but doesn't happen. These are not often, really yeah. special effects-heavy movies right. that we're watching. <laughs> not since Armageddon, at least. Well, I mean, there's uh, been a few, right? I mean, like, there's been a few, right. but like, this is—it's just interesting because in a 1950s movie about romance, 
one does not expect to need like special right. effects. Right. But in an in an O Fools movie, one does yeah, you do, apparently. You you do get the pushing the envelope of what can be done with a camera. Absolutely. Um, yeah. Uh, and there's a there's a lot of the, really I I'm a huge like that that story also has one like just the I the shot that stuck with me was the stair scene where he oh, pursues yeah. her up that gallery like that stair gallery right and then like down it again it's oh man that shot right it's so yeah. neat I don't know yeah does that stair wrap around or is it just the same stair and it's just like cleverly edited together? I have no idea, but it's nice. I think, I, like I it think it wraps around because I'm pretty sure it is one consistent. Take. I think so. We but talked you know, last there's, a, there's week. a way they could have blended it, but like, yeah, I think they, so they could have, but we did also talk last week about a fool's maybe being dyslexic right, and having a lot of trouble um, with those and, kind of edits. And yeah. yeah. Hating, hating editing for that reason. Um, the other shot that really stuck with me is the, uh, the one in the center, film where we never actually go inside the brothel really we just shoot from yeah no that's from really the outside the windows yeah and like we pan we pan through the windows and up the windows as as the madam closes the blinds and yeah it's well, super neat it, too it's a really interesting that one's really interesting because of like you know they they all do but like where where now you're getting into sort of visual storytelling and you get into the idea right. that like oh we're not welcome Right, here. right, like, right, right. There's that aspect too. This is not our place. Right? Like we are only allowed to observe it from the outside because what happens in here is 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 private. Private, um, right? Even to us as the right. audience. Yes. Yeah. Very, very good. Um, oh, there is one other change from the initial production uh, to our final product, other than the entire third act being different. <laughs> right, right. Other than that, um, yeah. or. Our narrator throughout, our first-person narrator who's describing his stories, is obviously meant to be Maupassant's uh, voice, right? Um, <clears throat> originally, there was more of a framing element okay. of Guy de Maupassant speaking with an unnamed filmmaker about adapting his short stories. Okay. And that filmmaker character is completely cut, obviously. And Maupassant uh, only exists as narrator. But that's also, that existed pretty late into production because even after the third act changed, the reason we have a different uh, uh, journalist character narrating the third act is that Maupassant brings on this other guy to explain the final story. Oh, interesting. To, um, okay. To the to and that's the, the only sort of like vestigial tale of that entire right, concept right, right. here. Oh, yeah. interesting. Yeah. I was um, wondering about that. It did feel that did make that was a bit of a disjointed thing. It does make that last story feel different than the other ones. The, right. The first two right. feel very much just like oh, I'm I'm just an omniscient narrator just walking you through this, and that last one has that extra element of making it framing it where it feels like a story being told uh, right to another person which is oh, and they interact like they don't directly interact but like the narrator who is that journalist observes them walking by and stuff which is very right right much more right. interaction between those two things than than the first two stories have right whereas whereas sort of everywhere else you know with the original framing element uh they're <sighs> The uh, the one bonus feature uh, from the film historian um, describes that I th I think originally the Mabasant and filmmaker characters were even meant to be like modern day dress 
Oh, um, okay. Or at least the yeah, filmmaker was. I could see that. But existing in the narrative, like, I like they would be sitting, so kind they of, would be like, sitting on a on a cart or something, uh, talking, and then we'd pan to the dance hall. Yeah, I figured it one. would be something right. like that. Too. Like yeah. in my head, that that makes that's what I would imagine he would do. Right. I mean, well, right. that would be the only reason you would really need those characters to be in there. Like, right. <laughs> like otherwise, there would be no point, right? Like, yeah. Where, where I feel that is a little detrimental is. Overall, this movie is very... We talked last week about O'Fool's love of symmetry, right? Mm -hmm. Narrative symmetry, visual symmetry, mirrored shots, mirrored concepts over the course of a movie. And this movie is very symmetrical as well. Like, the the first and last stories are primarily indoors, whereas the middle one is primarily outdoors and rural. Uh, The others are indoors and urban. There, there's the, also a weird like time symmetry. The first and the last are relatively short. The middle one's quite, quite like right. more robust. Right, right. The uh, the middle one is is much more robust, much longer. Has a much larger cast. Mm-hmm. Right, is about a group of women as opposed to an individual couple. Um, and there's a lot of that, but the change in narrative style on the third one from the first two, I think does negatively impact that. Yeah, I agree. That parallelism. Yeah. I mean, and um, especially since I don't feel like you actually need that character. Like, right. It, I right. don't know why keep that one in when you could just, yeah. I, I guess it's maybe depending on how late that is into production. Like, I guess maybe they just don't have enough material for the last one without that. Cause the, the last story story is very short. Like, if you don't have that lead right. in and that lead out, maybe it's just, like, not enough. Right. I mean, it would be, it would have been very much shorter. I mean, it, it's... I mean, I still the original agree concept. they should have figured something out, probably, but... I I think there's... There there also might be a timing thing where, because of all of the... Uh, all of the production changes. It's it's just at this point what well, we're gonna go with with yeah what we as have. soon as we yeah. finish a draft we're gonna go with it. Um, yeah, I mean I can uh, see that 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 makes sense. There's yeah. a lot of reasons why that might have happened. Um, right, right. Like we just got to get this out the door, kind of kind of work and right. Yeah, but yeah, as as much I gotta say, you know, <laughs> talking about the visuals of the movie, the last one is particularly like. <laughs> Like I, I also feel like maybe a fool's thought. Well, I don't have the big river set piece anymore, so I'm going to knock this one out of the park visually. Right. Um, Although I mean, I I will say that all of them are real. Are vi- like that first oh, yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In yeah, like yeah. the dance hall, the visuals in that oh, one yeah. are like it's just intense. Also, like it's right. Like you're just you feel so much like you're in just an absolute like wild ass party. The entire you're like there's just right. shit happening everywhere. You're still able to follow the characters, but like you feel. That one's interesting to me because it feels like so incredibly alive. Like you just right. feel like you're in a place that is so heavily. You feel claustrophobic almost for how many <laughs> right, people are right. like. Right. You're like, you feel as an audience member like you're you're surrounded by too many people. <laughs> it's like, like it's 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 crazy how well he conveys that feeling in there of being just right in the middle of this shit. So I, I see what you're saying about the last one. The last one is more. Right. I would say that last one is a little bit more. 
has definitely has like a lot of stylistic elements that make it more seem a little bit more like well elegant yeah. or something like that. But yeah. Daniel Galen, who plays the painter in the final one, is the actor who's interviewed um, for the Criterion DVD, and uh, he also points out. Well, well, he he provides the uh, absolutely invaluable uh, description of how that shot is actually made. Um, he points out the difference between that and the original uh, Maupassant short story, um, which he says uh, he says he brought up with O'Fools that it didn't feel right to change because the original uh, in the short story, our narrative focus stays on the painter okay. and. Uh, her suicide is basically just, and then I heard the window upstairs break sort of thing. (laughs) Um, uh, Whereas, you know, actively, actively following her to the suicide, even though, you know, we obviously don't see her commit suicide on screen so much as experience her committing suicide on screen, right? With the first person stuff, Um, which is super fascinating for, for the time particularly, but period. Um, he also talks about O'Fool's, uh, style in an interesting way, uh, particularly compared to other directors we've heard. Um, and like, uh, Galen had also worked with, um, uh, Renoir and, uh, Jacques Becker. So he, he compares directly to them. Um, but he says that, that O'Fool's style was essentially to let actors be themselves, mm-hmm. uh, but also um, be themselves as much as possible in harmony with his uh, his view of the character, right? Okay. With Ophel's view of the character. Right. But there was an active means to harmonize, to, to take notes from the actor, right? Um, whereas, you know, other directors we've seen... <laughs> would just be, well, this is my vision for the character and you're going to do it or you're not going to right. do it, right? Or, <laughs> alternatively, the other option, which is nothing at all, which we've also... <laughs> right, like, right, 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 right. Do you have any notes for me? What are you talking about? <laughs> no notes. No. Also, no notes from yourself. Yeah. Um, <laughs> How can I make you a worse actor? Let's figure this out. <laughs> my favorite version. Uh, that is my, literally my favorite thing in the world. I, can't, I could never get over that. He's very good. It's very good, um, but yeah. The, so the the Gallon interview is is very fascinating in in a few regards with that. There's also interviews with like the set the set decorator, um, which is uh, really fascinating, if not necessarily super informative. It's right. just we don't we don't often stuff. get we don't we don't often get Criterion interviewing someone from that end of the production, right? Like, well, like I mean, the yeah, introduction, I mean, the introduction of this, this interview, the first like five minutes is him describing what a set decorator actually is and where they fit into the hierarchy of the film right. production. Like, well, that, yeah, that is interesting because yeah, we don't, we don't, we get directors when they're available. We get right. actors fairly often. We get uh, sometimes occasionally cinematographers and occasionally and fairly often like critics, but yeah, right. like. Just like a, just a, yeah. just a person who and just I mean, worked they, on it is a is. They're yeah. not they're not crew crew. They're not like the gaffer or right. whatever. The guy just laying wire. 
he's still making creative decisions. Right. But it's a creative element of the film production that we just we don't, don't we, talk well, I don't about. We, all I don't that know often, that we've ever right? heard uh, gotten yeah. an interview with a set uh, yeah. dresser or anything like so, that. So, so yeah, you know, any yeah. As I said, it's not, it is terribly, it is interesting as a concept. It is less interesting in actual execution. Uh, right. To yeah. the point where I, I found it kind of hard to pay attention to the interview. I, I understand but that. It, yeah. But it does exist. Um, and that itself is very, very interesting. That's on uh, Criterion Channel. I don't actually know if that's on the DVD, but usually what's on the Criterion Channel is on the DVD. Yeah, I didn't so end up watching any of those extras this time. I just didn't have the, have the time. So, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, but yeah, just a lot of you know fascinating background stuff. Um, there's a uh, there's an American um, film scholar talking about it who literally says, <laughs> "This is my favorite thing from watching all of all of the bonus material." Um, the uh, the film scholar they interview, the critic they interview, uh, says he has no idea how they shot the uh, uh, the end of the model sequence. You know, oh, so that's fascinating. So, like, somebody needed to go do <laughs> some extra research. And then, right. And then and then Gellin comes on and is like, oh, yeah, this is how they did it. Um, and uh, it was really neat. And we spent a lot of time doing it. And, like, like he's not even the technical guy, right? Right. He's, he's just the actor in the He just happened the to be there when they did it, basically. Yeah. Right. Uh, but, yeah. Um, but, yeah, a lot, of, a lot of interesting material in the bonus stuff. Um but just a lot of interesting material in the movie itself. Too, yeah, I mean, right? the, the movie, so. yeah, like, I kind of, like, I'm fascinated by, like, what, I know, now that I know uh, that it's all based on, like, Mampasant, uh stories, it all kind of makes more mm. sense to me in the sense yeah. that, like, I what I struggle most with is, like, they're all stories about, you know, love and romance, and they're all tragic in their own way but i was like what what thread made these the you know what i mean i was like where did they come from you know what i mean and now right. i know but like when we were when i was actually watching i was like okay but like if you were to just sit down and write three stories for this movie <laughs> like why these th- why this like why what, what was this all about now i or understand even that you're actually adapting something that already exists so you're picking the stories you want to you want to talk about right but you're not you're not uh, right there's still an act of choice right because it's not just adapting a short story collection that mabasan had already put out or something right right you know he's he's particularly choosing which ones to portray um right right well uh, but yeah and i i agree with that my my thought process is more that yeah absolutely but it explains why there's not for example even more symmetry yeah. You know what I mean? Right. Why why, why right. it's not like perfectly He's still beholden to some source material, right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. It's interesting the the essay talks about uh Maupassant being much more I've never read any Maupassant that me, I me, yeah. that I'm aware of that I can remember. Um but the essay talks about Maupassant being much more like ironically disengaged from his characters like to a to a condescending degree at okay. times. Um, uh, whereas, uh, Ophuls here, you know, seems more, more caring about his people or at least more engaged with them. Yeah. I like would say the more ending, engaged. I mean, more caring. Yeah. Like, I mean, I guess 
that's hard yeah. to, to measure because you'd be like, right. Well, the I ending didn't of the... kill them when they should have died. <laughs> right, right. The ending of the mask in particular, right? The the doctor having had the conversation with the man's la- uh, wife leaves and learns the wrong lesson, right? right. Because <laughs> he goes, he he's going directly back to the dance hall to live his life while he can live his life. Uh, whereas the wife's the wife's whole point was he put he invested too much of his life in doing that that he couldn't let go of it, right? Right. Um. So, uh, so Maupassant would be much more overt to point out that the doctor has made the wrong choice, whereas O'Fool was sort of. Leaves it a little more up in the air. I well, think. I mean, and also I think probably you're t- we're talking a little bit about storytelling, like stylistic progression and stuff like that. Right. Like, like if you look at the last story, right, when you mentioned how, you know, the model would end in the Mompassant story of it's just like, well, and then I heard the crash from upstairs and she broke her legs yeah. or whatever. Like, right. that that disengagement right is is – is very much a like sort of short storytelling thing, right? <laughs> and indicative certain, yeah. of of short stories of the time, right? right. Exactly. Because Maupassant, yeah. like the model was written in 1883, right? And uh, the Miss Antelier 1881 and Le Masque 1889. So, you know, we're late 19th century, right. and we're being adapted in the mid 20th century, right? And you we've know, all very, read those late 19th different. century. Well, I mean. <laughs> I have short stories. Right. Not I've not read Mamasan, but that like sort of like what you choose to focus on and what you don't choose to focus on in right. storytelling. There's a certain yeah certain style to you know maybe stereotypically, but there is a certain style that we we have in mind for that era of right. romantic short story, right? So I so, wonder yeah, it's, in the Mamasan story, does he get married to her at the end? Of what the of, of the model the mask or the model the model no no she she commit it is my understanding they have the same conversation that he right she discovers that and he is he betrothed like, basically like here's a crash from upstairs or something and that's the end of the story right there right right so that's, that's just that's that's really fascinating because like that's like really showing you know like uh, that's a well, lot I mean I have to go read it, I guess but it's like, also interesting oh. then that. That the actual end of the model is her having survived the suicide attempt, right? Right, and and him taking care of her in presumably, you know, we don't get a time frame of how how many how long we're removed from what the narrator is describing, right? Right. So it could be that she's still in recovery, right? Or it but, could be but that she also never recovers. Says like, you know, right. Why did he ever marry that poor girl? And it seems like it's been a fair good amount of time because just the right, way the story right, is right. being told by the narrator right. lends a certain sort of it, like. It is the weirdest thing in that it is very close to a happy ending. <laughs> it is right, given the circumstances, well, it is and, the and happiest ending possible. <laughs> right, and that's the fascinating thing. Right, it's like it gets really weird because you know we were talking. Well, I was kind of going with that. Is it like a fool is kind of showing his hand in this a little bit more than maybe in the other stories, right. in like actually changing the story, right? Right, to make it do what he wants it to do, and then you get into like, well, if it's if it's a tragedy, you get into this conversation about whose tragedy it is because. The the narrator focuses almost entirely well focuses entirely on the painter, and like right. 
it being his tragedy because he, like, he essentially, like, loses his, what he wants to, like, marry this woman is kind of, like, the way the narrator sort of frames it. But I don't know if that's meant to be what we're supposed to, as the audience, really take away from it. It's really fascinating. Like, because if you think about that in symmetry with the first story being about that doctor taking away the wrong message. Right. And then possibly as a sort of symmetrical element of the the the, the journalist also getting the wrong, like yeah. conveying the wrong point. Right. To right. The Which is really where the interesting, you know, because... Because they are very similar stories in a a man refusing to let go of any of his independence, um, which forces the woman he ostensibly loves and who certainly loves him into worse and worse situations, right? Right. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, the, uh, the wife in The Mask never threatened suicide but the way she talks she probably considered it at some point right right <laughs> she yeah i mean she's certainly like this is just yeah. a sort of untenable situation that is just getting worse right. and worse right i mean at this point she's probably Which, i guess just waiting for him to die but <laughs> right, it's kind of right. the message right like she's like well i mean so she can finally sleep in her bed again yeah <laughs> this asshole's right. this is eventually gonna kill this guy and right i'll get to get a good night's sleep for once <laughs> Uh, she's a great character. Too. No, I, all I great she's characters. she's actually one of my favorite characters in the movie. Like her, yeah. The act, the actor does such a good job of conveying the just absolute total exasperation with this entire fucking situation. Right. Like, right. The way the entire movie is framed prior to her introduction is like, this is this is intense. A crazy thing is happening here, and she's like, ah, oh, right. this fucking shit again. Yeah, this all over yeah. again, huh? Like the introduction, particularly because he's wearing the Uncanny Valley mask, mm. it's got this almost like fantasy element to yeah. it, right? Yeah. And then, and then she just crashes the whole thing. Back oh no, to yeah, Earth it just collapses quick. entirely. It, it's it's <laughs> right. amazing. Like, and I was ex- I was really like I found it really engaging because like you're right, like with the fantasy element, I'm like, oh, where the fuck is this gonna go? This is crazy. Like, take out the mask. He's an old man. Oh, we're gonna have a whole fantastical journey. And it's like, nope, right. This fucking asshole won't stop doing no, this he's nonsense. Just, he's just an actual old guy. Yeah, he's just an actual <laughs> no. normal, old, like normal no, old guy who no witch sucked his life force or something. He didn't dance himself to death. Yeah, because exactly. He was I cursed thought that's to where dance we himself going. to death. I totally thought he that's just, where we were going. Or like, or yeah, he's, he's cursed to do this every night because he, right, did, you know. Right. And it's like, nope, nope. Just, just a weird old asshole who won't stop <laughs> yeah. acting like he's twenty five or whatever. Right. Uh, so good. It and it's, it's uh, very and good. honestly like it, I I'm in sort of I'm uncertain which of these stories is my favorite. I kind of love that one just because like how much I feel that sto- how much that story sort oh, of yeah. like is easy for me to take directly internally. It's like, yeah, yeah. you're you're not 25, okay? Like stop it. I that one's very good. Le model I love visually. Yeah, me too. But Le Maison Terrier for the way 
the how socially complex it is. Oh no, that really. one that one's really <laughs> I really did like that one. That one is yeah. the one that I would say in terms of like actually like because it's longer and you have more time to dig into the characters. Right. I right. I sort of mentally invested the most time and energy into trying I rewound a couple of times to try to understand exactly right. what was happening. The first one is not right. complex to watch because there's not that much interplay. There's interplay, but there's not right. that many moving parts, right? And it's sort of just one driving narrative, too, right? right. It just keeps going. Whereas um, in the the middle one, yeah, the Atelier one, you're like, oh, shit, like, why, why, what's going, okay. And, like, got to rewind and be like, what did I miss? Like, First why off, is- we, you know, we start with this whole mystery of where they've gone, right? And. And how them, and we get this very and silly. And we spend a good amount of time on that, which is a, another yeah. sort of head fake, right? Like, yeah, right. Because we start off with a social satire of what all of these most powerful men in this town are going to do with themselves when the, <laughs> the, when the brothel closes be, yeah. for one month, <laughs> for one night. And they, and they almost, you know, they almost come to blows. Right. right? And then you <laughs> kind of start imagining, well, this is the story. We're going to deal with these right. these jerks. You're like, oh, no, right. no, that's just, that's just to... Uh, just to let you know that they have to go back nope. because these guys will absolutely lose their <laughs> shit if it's two nights in a row. Whole town will burn down. <laughs> yes, yeah, like everybody's gonna die. They're already at like they're already at blows after like an hour of sitting yeah. on the pier together. These women are the uh, only reason they've the already town become is not already they've already become English. Yeah, um, right, yeah. Like you've you've lost your Frenchness and you're already willing to brawl in the streets. Yes, these women are gone um, two nights in a row. This entire thing is over. <laughs> Right. Another right. French Revolution right. is happening right now. Yeah, and then and then you know we get we get them at their lowest point to to the women just on the train having a, having a nice little time. Yeah, <laughs> and the peasant woman shows up and like she knows exactly who they are but won't like verbalize it. So she's nice, just being yeah. very judgmental yeah. about the whole thing. <laughs> and they've got their basket full of ducks, which is very nice. Um, and then the salesman who is you know. A wonderful little comedic character, and, and I love just gets how his comeuppance for getting way too fresh, right. which is really pretty <laughs> right. great. I love him just they getting his ass like tossed off the train. It's so off good, a moving train, like a train. Yeah. They don't have like I love how how complex that actually is when you think about the fact that like they throw him off the train. Like it's right. not like they don't call the, the 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 train conductor or anything like that. It's like they just toss his ass off the train. Right is is pretty great. Like in terms of like also, how it goes, I'd never actually thought about the logistics of a ticket collector uh, on a train that has no internal means of getting from car to car. Right, right. <laughs> so like the bits where he's just like hanging off the side of a moving train, yeah, <laughs> to pop in and say, "Hey, I, I mean, got you." Seems I like need bad design work, but yeah, right, right. Uh, you know, there's a reason. <laughs> there's a reason chain it train architecture changed moving forward right right? but uh but yeah um and that reason was because they had to commodify it right well i mean like the easier answer is you know like just get the ticket to the beginning and the end and like hope people won't just dive off a fucking moving train like yeah of course they (laughs) will but like like that the number of people who are willing to do that maybe you can assume is not too high (laughs) right I guess well, so. I think you know. what really changed is trains started going faster, and that became possible. Like, <laughs> this train you could yes. easily get on and off of, just like on the side of it. You'd be like, "Yeah, I'm just going to hop on right here." Right. This thing's only going <laughs> six miles an hour. I'll hop on. 
That's fair. You know, throwing him off a moving train probably wasn't uh, that dangerous. <clears throat> Though if they had thrown him off while they were still in the tunnel, it it would have yeah would have messed him up. <laughs> I'm sure. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure. Like it didn't feel good being chucked off a train. Right. Like period. Right. I just I don't know. It's so that that scene is just very funny to me. I just like it a lot. It's all very good. It's all very good. And then you know them having this idyllic experience in the countryside and and also mirroring that you know anyone who's lived in an urban area and tried to sleep for a night in the country has the same experience of not being able to sleep because it's too quiet right well i mean <laughs> right? If, right well or or yeah i mean this one yes is that one i i, I always work in the opposite direction to to my mind because it's like also, just how like this is not deal with it, but just how loud the countryside actually can be. Oh yeah, yeah. As as featured in the first like two hundred and fifty episodes of this podcast. <laughs> yes, yes. All of your all of your frogs and crickets. Yeah, like yes. the entire mass of wildlife, the 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 wild boars that occasionally go into rut or whatever out in front of my house. That's right, sort of stuff. right, right. Yeah, um, <laughs> that's fair. That's fair. Um. And then, you know, the whole, the emotional climax of the, the first communion scene where Rosa starts crying and then all of the other girls start crying well, and, and the, whole the entire church crying, starts crying. Yeah. So the whole, uh, it's very, it's very nice. It's very nice and it's very sweet the way it plays out and uh, Rosa having, it's, it's a little tragic in that Rosa is the only one who seems to aspire to a life that is not the one she is currently living, and she doesn't actually get to achieve that. But also her only means of achieving that that are taken away from her in the course would have ruined someone else's life. So right, I, right. I, can't, I don't really have any sympathy for Jean Gabin's character. I love that I saw Jean Gabin. He's a fantastic actor, right? and it's nice to, nice it's to, nice see, to see him, him. show up whenever yeah. he sees him, <laughs> whenever he shows up. But, uh, but like, yeah, it's not... <laughs> He's not exactly uh, sympathetic here, right? <laughs> you know? Right. No matter how quiet and in the background his seemingly somewhat elderly wife is, she doesn't deserve whatever he's doing. So right, and that and th- their relationship is really <laughs> like it's very, it's all I don't want to say confusing. It's all just sort of like very backgrounded, right? Like right, right, right. Um, yeah, and that's and that's like a weird aspect too. Like, you know, I don't know what what I'm sure he's pulling from the source material. Some right. opposants still exist, but it just seems like narratively, all of this still would have worked if the mother had died pre-narrative, right? Yeah, I mean, and like like, like maybe even make a little more sense because the harm that it would do to her. Right. Like, that's no one's making decisions based off of that. Basically. Ultimately, the decision making is based on the harm that it would cause the madam, right? Basically, <laughs> yeah. yeah. And I think there's a certain sort of, I don't know, there's also this sort of air about it where there's that, but also this sort of like, this sort of resignation to the movie in the sense that, like, uh, like where everybody sort of just has to deal with the fact that this is a pipe dream that's not going to happen. Right. Kind of thing. You know what I mean? Like, it's like, you know, he pursues it, and he's considered basically a lout for doing it, right? Like, which is right. fine, good. Okay, great. And he is. So, that is yes. true. That is accurate. 
But for Rosa, it's like kind of like no, this is just a pie in the sky. Like I I got yeah, to dream about this other world for a little bit, and I don't super like that. But obviously, yeah. obviously, Mabasants and and Ofuls are both not interested in happy endings. No, so they're not. There's that and, aspect. And but. I kind of get it because not not because I I don't like happy endings, but like from a sort of like weird like sort of emotional journey sense, her getting to just stay there would be a much less fulfilling story in the end. That's fair. Like it would just yeah. be like a, it would be so straightforward that it would be like, well, what? What are we trying to say here about life? That like, oh well, you can just move to the countryside. You'll find that that guy who will actually like that you'll actually like enjoy being with and enjoy the lifestyle with, and you could stay there, right? And it'll all be great. And I, and I do appreciate you know even having it torn away from her that you know Gabine's character is not one hundred percent perfect, right? You know, no, he's yeah. not. Yeah, he's not some sort of ideal thing that exists in the country. He's still, you know, he is he is very willing to, while she is in the house, cheat on his wife. Right. With, well, and that's the interesting. I think that's part, and that's I would argue probably why we have to have the wife character more than right. anything is to really hit home that like even this pipe dream is wrapped up in a dude doing a really bad thing. Like right, right. you know what I mean? Like it it's it's really Rosa more really, than anything about her having sort of like rose colored glasses for ha 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 ha. Um in the sense that like it's nice to dream about another lifestyle, but like right. would you actually commit to doing that lifestyle? Keep in right. mind also that the beginning of the narration for that, and I may be misremembering it slightly, emphasizes that for a lot of these women, at least as far as the story is concerned, for a lot of the women in this in this place, they came from the countryside or or were sent there because it is a like kind of a lots of countryside people consider it a a, a good job, right? Right. And so right, we don't right. know where Rosa came from. At least financially sound job. Right. Well, um, and the, and the, the narration yeah. the narration's a little weird at the beginning there because the narration almost. The narration seems to kind of want to have its cake and eat it too, in terms of like. Well, it's describing each of the women as a sort of archetype too, right? right? So, like, yeah, or stereotype, as the case may be. Yeah, more more (laughs) stereotype than anything. But again, we talked about this last time. Like, this is the this one right here that we're talking about is the most like well rounded characters get in terms so far that we've encountered with O'Fools. Right. And right, like right. and that's not that much, but at least we spend enough time with these characters uh in this middle story that we actually kind of get a little bit more information about them beyond this sort of the their stereotype right. or archetype. Um right. and yeah. and sort of like last week's movie, a lot of that roundness comes from seeing the characters in two different uh right, yeah. surroundings. Absolutely. Right, two different experiences. Um and really, you know, ultimately three because these women also have the between space of being on the train right right and we Um, can see them as a sort of unified group of people there and then we can see like there's a lot and again we get into the thing we talked about last week which is a lot of the a lot of what we do in character building here in this movie is based on how good the actors are uh right and i think the acting show place is best in that middle story 
Like the other ones again are almost so short we don't even get that much of that. Uh, right. Barring a few exceptions, right? Like the 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 wife in the first one is certainly that's so a two, good. tour de force of right. right. <laughs> but she's kind of the only one, right? And that's not that's, right. that's the story, right? That she's basically the only character. Um, right. And then in the end, that one just feels like it. it it's again we get our our you know. Those two are the only two, and they their playoff of each other is pretty intense. Right. But it also goes by very quickly. So the first one's very interesting because the wife is the only one who is not performing a role, who's not who's not on stage to everyone else in the narrative. Right. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. Like her yeah, husband and no the doctor on, are both. Yeah. Right. She has no mask on. Everybody else is wearing our mask, and and she's completely unmasked, and as such is the best acting <laughs> within, Absolutely. within the entire and, and, sequence. And that seems very, that does seem to a certain extent yeah. very intentional, right? Like, because right. she's kind of the only important person in the story. <laughs> like, right. like, there's nobody else in there. Like, you could have, you could do that as a one, almost as a one-person show, right? Right. Like, you could essentially cut out the doctor from yeah. almost and have just her talking yeah, to she's herself got a next to a dummy in a bed there, right. and you'd be like yeah we're good right 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 that's fair that's absolutely true because like um, nothing she says in that that scene really needs another party per se like it it's easier but like you right. could essentially have that same dialogue with yourself while you deal with your useless husband who's half dead in a bed right like <laughs> right 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 <laughs> Uh. <laughs> that's fair yeah like, the yeah. the last one is I, I the, that a last little one less beautiful. so it's just, it feels too fast to me like I just couldn't right hardly engage with the characters because it just flies by I barely get to know any of them uh, it's I, a real roller coaster with their relationship too yeah. um, which which is interesting uh, because there's a lot of up and downs, like literally. Yeah, actually, yeah, shot. actual up and downs, so, yeah. Like, yeah. Um, but like the, the fight sequence with them where we're panning through their kitchen dining room area and the silverware drawers are getting slammed and, and all that is, is very interesting. I want to know why everybody hates too. the silverware in that show so much. Or in that, ep- or in that <laughs> in the part of the movie. So it's like, wh- I, like he's looking for the key, right? But it's like. Right. Like, did you think she hid the key in the silverware drawer? Like, I mean, if it's possible, it's got to be somewhere. I yeah, um, I suppose so. But I feel like you're just kind of well. People too. hate silverware because silverware it's a it's a representative of a life together, right? Oh, I because, see, I see. You know, These are all wedding. Pre- no, they weren't married at the time. I don't they know. weren't. They weren't married yet, so <laughs> they're not I wedding. Fucking no, man. Uh, yeah. Well, see, I will maybe say there's this. two silverware drawers because it's still his and her silverware. It's all right. of her personal stuff so, and his personal stuff, and they haven't wedded it together. Here's, here's, <laughs> yeah, right. And this, that's why we have so much fucking silverware. Um, I will say though that one of the things I, I don't know, maybe I'm just dumb and didn't pay attention close enough to the journalist at the beginning, but I felt almost like there was a certain in my mind, maybe because again, I could just be very dumb, uh, like a certain sort of sleight of hand. Because the way the story was framed was like, well, why did he marry that poor girl? And then it's like, right. well, that's an interesting story. And I thought that he was going to get married to some other woman No. after they separated. You know what I mean? Well, I mean, obviously, that's not where the story go- I I did understand the story. But like until 
close to the end, to a certain extent, it felt like, oh, this is going to be another woman that he sort of like, that he got married to after this, she jumped out the window, but it's not, it's just the same woman. I, I feel like that was intended to be some sort of mild sleight of hand. Right, right. Like, not yeah. the most interesting sleight of hand, but it did feel like maybe a little bit. I don't know. I, w- I was taken out pretty quick in the beginning uh, when she's introduced um, on the stair sequence. They describe her as having a childlike and sensual face. Yes, I, I noticed that too and went, <laughs> and I, just... I actually audibly said, <laughs> I did as alone well. Alone next to my dog on the couch. Just wrote, me and, me and I her. Wrote, I wrote in my notes, canceled. Everyone is canceled. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like... I, I, I audibly said enough that the dog looked up at me like, is everything here okay? Like, yeah. do, do you need help? Uh, yeah, it was a very good shot, but I could have, yeah. I mean, different times, sure, but also um, it was never good never good to describe someone as childlike yeah, and no, sensual. No, <laughs> no, the, like you should not be re- describing any romantic partners as childlike. I'm sorry. Right, right. Uh, but yeah, uh, <laughs> I I look forward to next week for another Ophels and f- just seeing what he can do visually. Yeah. Um, well, and then you know, and honestly, kind of in a weird way, like it also storytelling. I I've just become very impressed yeah. by what he gets out of his actors. Like what kind of performances he seems to be pulling out of them is really right become a fascinating thing to watch. Right. And to that end, it's interesting to hear one of his actors say that, you know, it's, it is a synthesis, very much a synthesis of what we wanted to do as actors and what he wanted us to do as, uh, as his characters. So, yeah, it's, uh, he's definitely taking a different tick of that from, uh, from other people. Um, yeah, you know, from other directors we've we've interacted with. Uh it'll be interesting next week. Next week is also an adaptation of a novel, but it's an adaptation of a novel that O'Fools co-wrote in 1951. Oh, <laughs> so, okay. Like So this will be like the, the first thing we've encountered that is like just straight up his that yeah, yeah, and isn't an adaptation of in uh late 19th century work of fiction. So Right. Yeah. Uh so I'll definitely be interested in that. In in that, you know, he's got two other co-writers on the novel, according to Wikipedia here, um, and then uh, the screenplay uh, is the same credited writers. So I don't know if. Uh... Oh no, I'm sorry. I miss. Uh, I'm misinterpreting. I missed an apostrophe. <laughs> So it is, it is, next week is uh, not his own original work, um, but it is based on a 1951 novel by named Louis Levesque de Vermeon, who's I'm not familiar with, and my, in my original reading, thought that was the name of the novel. Um, but, oh, okay. Well, but I mean, yeah. even then, we are dealing with a much more recent story as the right, source right. material than a late 19th century next week's uh, American film critic Andrew Saris has called uh, next week's movie the most perfect film ever made all right well I mean well uh, I'll be the judge of that thank you very much yes um but this week's movie was also called the uh, 
by critics the most uh the most stunning example of narrative symmetry in any film ever made so right uh so there's that too um but yeah look forward to that this week has been very interesting in its own right uh it's a, you know we talked last week about the the description of le ronde not leading either of us to really anticipate watching it at right. all yeah <laughs> and it being totally different than we expected 100 <laughs> right right yeah. so it's yeah he's just occasionally you know one of the one of the great things about doing this project is we get introduced to directors we had never heard of who are just phenomenal in their work and i get to wonder why i'd never heard of them before mm-hmm. um and obviously, you know, O'Fools is working in a particular genre that is not one that I go out of my way to interact with. Well, and I don't so, feel like we so there is really that even get shown to me very often. Like, people don't, right. like, have you watched this uh, this 1950s French, uh, yeah. like, Weird kind of, sex comedy? Yeah. Um, I'm like, no. I, like, that just doesn't happen. Nobody has ever, nobody walks up to me and says that. So, Right. Well, I mean, last week's was a sex comedy. This is more of a sex tragedy too right right a lot of it so uh but yeah yeah you know obviously O'Fools has a very particular view of uh human relationships um right uh from what we've seen so far so there is that aspect of it and it's not one i necessarily share but it is at least interesting to watch i mean is interesting to watch right I have I have seen plenty of other directors french directors in particular whose view of human relationships are uh are not ones I share that are not interesting. Right. Yeah. Or also just so. not enjoyable to watch. So, <laughs> yeah. So, so this is good. Yeah. So this week we've been talking about the house of pleasure, uh, Les Plaisirs from 1952, uh, directed by Max O'Fools based on the Guy de Maupassant's short stories, Le Masque, Les Maisons Telliers, and Les Modèles. Uh, it's just a fascinating little episodic movie. Um, I think it maybe would have been more fascinating with the the interstitial bits. One, not necessarily to have Maupassant as a character in it, but the fact that he's talking to a filmmaker suggests that the character was an O'Fool's stand-in. Right, it would and be we interesting could have gotten his perspective on this story a little his bit. His perspective on himself, even, right, would have yeah. been interesting to see, too. Right. Um, but then again, considering the way we've seen a lot of directors that we maybe don't always enjoy watching... Sometimes I right. don't really, I, you know, at the same time, there's always that, is, like, maybe I don't need to do it. It is fair to say, it is fair to say what we don't like about those directors is the way they present themselves. Yeah, right. So, um, so there's that. I don't know. Ophuls maybe seems to have a little more uh, self-awareness in it. Right. Well, and then that self-awareness may lead directly to, hey, maybe I shouldn't be in this movie. <laughs> He's self-aware enough to cut himself out of yeah. the movie. There's some, maybe good. some value in that. Yeah. Oh, they don't need to know about me. Okay. okay. <laughs> I see what you're that is that is fair. Uh yes. Next week we'll be talking about our last of Fools movie in this sequence, uh, the earrings of Madame Day. And uh yeah, definitely look forward to it. So thank you so much for listening to Lost in Criterion. I am as always the Adam Glass with me as always, John Patrick Oatari Dorgan, and we'll see you next time.
been Lost in Criteria. I'm your co-host, Adam Glass. You can find me on Twitter at the Adam Glass. My partner is John Patrick Oitari Dorgan, and you can find him at J. Patrick Dorgan. Check out more of the show at lostincriterion.com or, hey, give us a review on iTunes. It's nice. If you really like what you hear, consider supporting us at patreon.com slash lostincriterion. Hey, our theme music is by Jonathan Hape. Check him out at jonathanhape.com. And thanks for listening. We appreciate it.